This is a crowd podcast. Most of the things you're about to hear in this podcast were never intended to be made public. I come to order. This investigation is convened by Lieutenant General James T. Mattis, commanding officer. They are part of a crime that shocked the world and a cover-up that reached into the highest levels of the U.S. military. The murder of 24 innocent civilians in the Iraqi town of Haditha. By the pouring order dated 23 May of 2007, in the case of Staff Sergeant Frank D. Woodridge, United States Marine Corps. May I call your first witness? Yes, there are also recordings in this podcast the U.S. government doesn't know exist. Recordings I secretly made during the decade I followed the Marine at the center of this scandal. A staff sergeant the government knew was innocent, but who they charged anyway with 18 counts of premeditated murder. Frank Wooderich. I remember coming into this room. Ever. Not until later that day. Right. Yeah, that. Yeah. You didn't shoot in here? Correct. You sure of that? Positive. For nearly a decade, I lived in constant fear the government would find out about these recordings, that I'd be served with a subpoena and be forced to hand over everything you're about to hear. The corruption, the malfeasance, the cover-up I had documented, none of it would see the light of day. That's now, why those people are shot in the fucking heads. Is that what it is? It was... He didn't, I don't rem- he didn't, he didn't go in with, with the four of us. He went in after we were done with House 2 and on our way back. Did you lose control of these guys that day? I mean, were they acting on their own or...? That that never happened, that these recordings were never confiscated, is maybe the most unbelievable part of this story. Because I think it's safe to say, had the government actually listened to the material you're about to hear, they would have easily won their case. And Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderich, the person at the center of the scandal, would likely be serving a life sentence for murdering a room full of women and children. He's trying to sugarcoat it, Staff Sergeant. I know he's know what happened. Okay? So let's cut the bullshit. You sat in my office one day and you, you said you didn't shoot in the back bedroom. Yes, sir. Okay? I know you know what happened. Whatever the reason, you can... I don't give a shit. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. There's one last thing you need to know before we set off on this journey together. By the time the Haditha case ended, and I finally stopped filming, by the time every single Marine, with the exception of Frank Wooderich, had been granted immunity or had their charges dismissed, I no longer wondered about Frank's innocence or his guilt. I had made up my mind. I was not an impartial observer. We don't understand how, if crimes were committed in those bedrooms, how the only people who could have committed them were given immunity and their charges dismissed with prejudice. How does that happen? How, how can that possibly be justice for the people of Haditha? Whether by design or incompetence, the truth about the Haditha massacre, one of the most important criminal cases in the last half century, has been covered up by the United States Marine Corps. This podcast is the story of that cover-up and how it happened. It is the story of one lawyer's journey into the abyss of the military justice system and an opposing NCIS agent's search for the truth. It is the story about the fog of war and murder in cold blood, of how memory can obscure truth. But it is also, in a way, my story. 
When I started filming, Haditha was front-page news, the subject of breathless reporting and round-the-clock cable news debate. Today, it is almost entirely forgotten, a footnote in a war that most of us would rather forget. Had I been smart, I'd have forgotten about it too. But I couldn't. Haditha became my white whale, an obsession. I couldn't let it go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Possibly seven gunshots in the kitchen door. Evidence collected. Departing house two at 1555 due to a tactical situation which demands our departure. House two and... I'm Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in Marine Corps history. Murder in House 2. Episode 1. The First Cover-Up. The story of the Haditha massacre, at least the way I'm going to tell it, doesn't start with the roadside bomb or with the civilian deaths. Instead, it starts with a speech made by the President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, George Bush. Thank you. Thanks for the warm welcome. Weird hearing George Bush's voice, isn't it? It's almost like this story took place during another lifetime, which in some ways I guess it did. Anyway, in December 2005, George Bush gave a speech at the World Affairs Council at the Park Hyatt Hotel in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was about the war in Iraq, which at that point had been going on for a little more than two and a half years. Today, the call of liberty... It's being heard in Baghdad and Basra and other Iraqi cities, and its sound is echoing across the broader Middle East. From Damascus to Tehran, people hear it, and they know it means something. It means that the days of tyranny and terror are ending, and a new day of hope and freedom is dawning. Thank you for letting me come. It's so tempting to dive into that speech. To look back with 2020 hindsight and unpack everything George Bush got wrong that morning. I mean, really. So bad. But what Bush said in his prepared speech isn't relevant to our story. It's what came afterwards that matters. I got a little extra time on my hands, so I thought I might answer some questions. I've got a little extra time on my hands, so I thought I'd take some questions. I've been trying to tell this story for over a decade, and I still marvel at that moment at the scandal that would unfold because of that one simple request. I'd like to take some questions. I mean, how could George Bush have known that the very first question he'd be asked would trigger a cascade of events so monumental it would expose the first cover-up in our story? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Since the inception of the Iraq War, I'd like to know the approximate total of Iraqis who have been killed and by Iraqis. I include civilians, military, police, insurgents, uh, translators. How many Iraqi citizens have died in this war? Um, I would say 30,000 more or less have died as a result of the initial incursion and the ongoing violence against Iraqis. We've lost about 2,140 of our own troops in Iraq. That's it. How many civilian deaths in the war? If you think about it, It's a pretty simple question, 
and George Bush gave a pretty direct answer. But here's the thing. No one, at least not before that moment, had thought to ask it. And no one knew if Bush's answer was anything more than a guess. But it was that brief exchange between a private citizen and the President of the United States that sent one reporter on a mission and uncovered the first horrifying details of a massacre. The word had been going on in Iraq for two solid years. And George Bush's statement was the first time that anyone in the U.S. government had talked about civilian casualties. This is Tim McGurk. In 2006, Tim was a reporter for Time magazine based in the Middle East. The only way you could really get out into the countryside where the fighting was going on was embedded with the American military. The Hammurabi Human Rights Group operated where most of the fighting was going on. And um, so I met with the director and we talked about how he'd been running a circus, you know, during the times of Saddam. And it was a crazy story how he, he went from that into human rights work. And at the end of this discussion, he said, look, I want to show you these videos. And he actually said, he said, you know, I've tried to take these videos to CNN office, but they weren't interested. And so I said, okay, let me see the videos. I don't remember the first time I saw the video Tim McGurk was given that day. Oddly, I think it was on CNN. But I do remember asking myself, how does something like this happen, even in war? The video, which I'll do my best to describe, runs for about 20 minutes and takes place over several locations. The first is in the Haditha Moor. It's awful. There's a middle-aged man holding his hands to his face in anguish. All around him are dead bodies, women and children, in American body bags. In the back of the morgue, near a white flatbed truck, a white-haired man unzips one of those body bags. Inside is a child, a little girl who's maybe four or five years old. Her face and pajamas are soaked in blood. The first time I watched, I had to turn off the video. The scene then shifts to a bedroom where the floor, the bed, the walls are all covered in blood. A local man tells the camera in Arabic a bomb went off nearby, close to the main road, and then this happened to us. He points to the blood on the floor, on the walls, and says, they're innocent people. They have nothing to do with terrorism. Look at the blood of the children. Where did these come from? Who did it? And he said, it was the U.S. Marines, and it happened in Haditha in the month of November. I assume that something absolutely horrendous happened in this place and a lot of civilians were killed. But I'm not discounting the fact that it might have been uh, people who were killed by insurgents for one reason or another, that it's really a propaganda film. Yeah, I mean, I was very conscious of that in the beginning. And I started out by doing this Google search. The U.S. Marines, Haditha, and the month of November. And this um, wire service story popped up. One U.S. Marine killed, 15 Iraqi civilians, all killed by a roadside bomb, and eight insurgents also killed in Haditha. Here's what the official Marine Corps statement said. A Marine died in a roadside bomb explosion that also killed 15 civilians and sparked a battle that killed eight insurgents in Haditha. Now that sounds plausible, something you'd barely note in a war 
where civilians are getting killed every day. Only, it was a lie. An attempt to cover up the truth. Because once Tim McGurk started to think about it, it made no sense. I mean, how did a room full of women and children get killed by a roadside bomb? We call the director of the Iraqi hospital. Were the injuries the kind of injuries that they would have sustained if it was a roadside bomb? He says, no, all of them were killed with bullets. I didn't stop there. I found out that the U.S. government paid compensation to the families of the women and the children who'd been killed. The U.S. military doesn't give compensation for Iraqis who are killed by other Iraqis. They only give compensation if U.S. forces are involved somehow in the death of these people. At at this point, I contacted the Marines. I said, look, something has happened in Haditha that doesn't square with uh, your official version of events. The spokesman says, I can tell you right now, it went down exactly the way that the first communique said that it did. Anything else? Al-Qaeda propaganda, and you're falling for it. I think it's important to stop here and talk about the pushback Tim got from that Marine public affairs officer. Because if you think about it, for just a minute, what the Marine Corps was saying to Tim was that if he told the truth, if he wrote that civilians were killed not by a roadside bomb, but by U.S. Marines, he'd be publishing Al-Qaeda propaganda. Luckily, Tim pushed ahead. And I said, we want to hear what your reaction is to what we found out. And the lieutenant colonel who was in charge says, well, I'm going to send this on to the generals, and I'm going to say I think that this merits a full investigation. And at that point, we said, okay, we'll wait until we hear the results of your military investigation. By the time Tim McGurk uncovered the truth, that something horrible had happened in Haditha, the war in Iraq was already an unmitigated disaster. America found itself fighting an entrenched insurgency. There was no evidence of weapons of mass destruction, and the Abu Ghraib scandal, with its images of American soldiers torturing Iraqi prisoners, had already permanently damaged the U.S.'s image. Now, the threat of a new scandal, this one involving the murder of two dozen civilians, many of them women and children, threatened to destroy whatever support was left for the war. Inside the NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, dozens of agents were assigned to the Haditha investigation. It consumed hundreds of thousands of manpower hours. Haditha quickly became the single most important case inside the agency. The NCIS ordered two forensic specialists to make sense of all the evidence being collected. They were the two most senior forensic consultants inside the agency. Michael Maloney and Thomas Brady. When I was assigned to Haditha, I was a uh, senior forensic consultant at NCIS. That's former NCIS special agent Mike Maloney. I was running our forensic office out of Okinawa, Japan. I received a call, and it would have been in late February, and that it looked as if we were going to need to do an on-scene analysis or an on-scene crime scene for a case breaking in Iraq. And at that point, I was told by my supervisor, this one has a lot of media interest. Uh, It's got high-level government interest. We really want you on the ground on this one. What does that mean when you hear that? I mean, high-level media, high-level government? When you hear high-level media interest or seat of government interest, that's the other one. When you hear those, uh, you kind of cringe because that's traditionally where your organization ends up on the cover of Time magazine. 
Mike Maloney's partner for the Haditha investigation was Special Agent Tom Brady. No, not that Tom Brady. The other one. The one who spent his entire life inside the United States Marine Corps and the NCIS. I was actually driving. I was on the road. I was driving to South Florida, and I got a call from my boss. 24 victims, civilian casualties in a combat action, and we have many of them. There probably weren't two better people to send. And we both had considerable experience. We're both former Marines, and I think that made a difference going into this environment. We've been standing in one place for a very long time. Might want to shift a few feet. I'm just making sure if someone's looking at me that he's got to at least readjust his sights every couple seconds. What are you thinking? At this point, I'm thinking, what a mess. We're being asked to go into Iraq, which is certainly not an area that we have solid control over, to go into the town of Haditha, which is in Surgent Central, and to work a crime scene that happened four months ago when we've had no control over the scene, and to witness uh, or to interrogate and to interview people that have every reason not to tell us the truth. This was an investigative nightmare. Did you say you got the directly outside the door? A shell casing located outside the entrance door, which would be coming in from the rear of the residence. How long were you told going in you think you have? You, you, how much did you need and how much were you told you would have? The time that I needed, I was told that we had 20 to 40 minutes for the insurgents to have a response to us being in their neighborhood. So we're looking at doing death scenes in 20 minutes to an hour tops. If this were something that happened in the United States, I would have that scene for four or five days, each one. And we'd be working it for 16 hours a day. When I first read about the Haditha massacre, I assumed, wrongly, that it was a single event. I think most people did. The story we were told was that after a roadside bomb which killed one of their own, a squad of Marines, led by Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderich, distraught and overcome with rage, killed 24 civilians. It was, in other words, a crime of passion. Now, the Marine version was obviously different. They said that after the IED attack, Frank's squad came under fire. And while pursuing these insurgents, civilians had tragically but unintentionally been killed. The question Maloney and Brady had to answer was who was telling the truth. What's that? Let's get our whole team. we got to go back this way and around the corner to the left. Okay. Can you orient me at all? Do you see house one or two, or are we just not? Okay. The, the IED explosion back that way. Okay. There were four separate places where civilians were killed in Haditha. The first happened almost immediately after the IED attack. A white vehicle had pulled off to the side of the road. Five Iraqi males stood next to it. Within a minute, maybe two of the explosion, the Marines shot and killed all five men. The NCIS called this location roadside. A showcasing located outside the entrance door will be labeled F1 firearms evidence, first piece of firearm evidence in house one. Then, while tending to two Marines wounded by the roadside bomb, Frank's squad came under small arms fire. Someone was shooting at them with an AK-47. They believed that firing was coming from a home the NCIS would later call House One. This is House One. 
is House 1 stone stucco cement structure. Staff Sergeant Wooderich and three other Marines were ordered by their platoon commander to clear south. They ran across a ravine towards House 1. Once there, they cleared the home and killed six Iraqi civilians. Progressing on foot. House 1 en route to House 2. Time of entry, 15. 48. Then one Marine thought he saw an insurgent running across the yard in House 1. They gave chase and eventually got to what the government would call House 2. Heading in what appears to be the southerly entrance, appears to be a two-story structure that is mortar, stone, construction. When the Marines arrived at House 2, an unarmed Iraqi male answered the door. He was shot seven times and killed instantly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Possibly seven gunshots in the kitchen door. The Marines then entered House 2. At the end of the hallway were five children, their mother, and their aunt, who were hiding in the back bedroom. They were all shot and killed. Location one down the hallway to a rear bedroom. Remember that blood-stained bedroom in the video Tim McGurk was given? This is it. Possible impact sites, as described by S.A. Maloney. S.A. Blaine has dug into a defect and has located a bullet, suspected spent bullet. For the Marines, it's been about 20 minutes since the roadside bomb exploded. Departing house to 1555 due to a tactical situation which demands our departure. House two and... Some two hours later, the Marines entered what would become known as House four. They claimed that in one of the bedrooms, an Iraqi male pulled an AK-47 on them. And in a close quarter fight, they killed him and three others. Time is 12.33. We've been clearance to enter House 4. Marking in the hall hallway, marking what appears to be reddish brown. This will be B1. It's potential bloody fingerprints. We're going to be here longer than we thought. Maloney and Brady went to each location, trying to determine whether they could find evidence that would support either the Iraqi or Marine version of events. What they found confirmed neither. Haditha, from the start of Maloney and Brady's investigation, was not the murderous rampage portrayed in the press. But neither was it entirely justified under the rules of engagement. Haditha, as we'll come to see, was both murder in cold blood and the fog of war. How long did it take you and what degree of confidence did you have as you're starting to give your forensic analysis to the prosecution? I would say within 90 days of leaving the dam, we knew what happened in each of the houses. We didn't necessarily know who the players were. Someone else would fill in who was in what position. But we knew from the evidence that we examined, from all of the photographs and from everything else, we knew basically what happened at each of the four sites within 90 days. And we had a very high degree of confidence in that. We knew it would be tweaked and other things like that, but we knew the basic movement through the house where triggers were pulled, where victims were, what visibility was. We had that nailed down within 90 days. And would you consider Haditha at that moment to be a war crime? I don't know the definitions of war crimes well enough to answer that. you know, a criminal scene, which is to say something worthy of prosecution. There were definitely criminal scenes within Haditha. 
within the four scenes of Haditha, there were areas where there certainly seemed to be criminal culpability. A crime took place. Yes, a crime took place. Right, okay. So this notion that the Marines just acted uh, within the reasonable constraints of the rules of engagement did not wash with you. Exactly, and and that's the situation we ran into is uh, the Marines weren't completely lying, the Iraqis weren't completely lying, but the Marines weren't completely telling the truth, nor were the Iraqis. Parts of the Haditha from A to Z didn't raise question or concern, but others were deeply troubling. And clearly, at least two points within the Haditha experience from A to Z, uh, there, there was criminal culpability. There were people that were killed that did not pose a threat and did not need to be killed. Right. They were murdered. They were murdered. That's a, that's a very wordy definition of it's, murder. Well, but murder is not a definition I can use because murder is what a jury decides happens. Right. Okay, fair enough. I, yeah. I, I so, hear I, that. so I'm trapped within the vocabulary of my profession. This is Michael. And I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy, I don't have the time to cook. But I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals. And with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me, and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients, like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com My name is Bill Huffman and I am a former Cleveland News producer and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. 
Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. By the time Mike Maloney and Tom Brady returned from their site visit, the first rumblings that a serious war crime had taken place in Haditha were making their way up the Pentagon's chain of command. Meanwhile, Tim McGurk was still waiting for the military's response to his initial reporting. Our Pentagon correspondents started getting indications that, yeah, they were looking into it. Then we had heard that CNN had got kind of wind of the story and that they were going to come out with something. So at that moment, my editors said, Tim, you've got four hours to write the story. Written in just four hours, Tim's story was finally published four months after the event. The incident allegedly took place in November in Haditha. Now to those allegations that U.S. Marines opened fire on innocent civilians in Iraq last November in a town named Haditha. Almost immediately, Haditha was compared to one of the worst war crimes in American history. The entire war in Vietnam came down to those two words, me lie, and one more, massacre. Same thing is about to happen in Iraq, and this time the name is Haditha. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. The horrific details, the images of the blood-soaked bedroom, the amateur video of the wailing family members in the morgue, all of it got sucked into the 24-hour news cycle. Was this me, lie? I mean, was this a case of, when you say cold blood, Congressman, a lot of people think you're basically saying you got some civilians sitting in a room or out in the field and they're just, they're executed just on purpose. Not because the Marines are scared or anybody's scared. This was not an action. At first, they tried to say it was an IED. There was no IED involved in this. This was, was troops. They were so stressed out, they went into houses and killed children, women and children. 24 people they killed. And at the center of it all was Frank Wooderich. ABC News has learned from sources close to the investigation that the ranking officer in the group that went into the homes is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderich, and that Sergeant Wooderich is a focus of the investigation. Now, in the middle of this firestorm, I decided I wanted to make a documentary about Haditha. Actually, to get really specific, I decided I wanted to make a documentary about Frank Wooderich. And let me give you an example of what we're talking about, okay? While you guys were on your site visit in Iraq, uh, or on your way back, actually, we got sent to us videotape uh, of you walking through the house and you talking. And you remember doing that with Epstein? Okay. That's Neil Puckett. He was Staff Sergeant Wooderich's lawyer during the six and a half years it took the case to wind its way through the military courts. When the Haditha story first broke, when all hell was breaking loose. I wrote Neil and proposed I make a film about Frank's defense because it was clear to me right at the very beginning that Haditha was going to be one of the most important criminal investigations in Marine Corps history. Well, what did you think when I called you? You were getting a lot of phone calls. Well, I was getting a lot of phone calls, uh, mostly from the press, but your phone call was, was very different, and it, and it was intriguing, uh, the, the, the offer that you made to meet and, and discuss this. About a month after that first phone call, I drove down to Alexandria, Virginia, and met Neil at his local Starbucks. For three hours, we discussed the case and my idea for a film. Now, there's a lot you'll learn about Neil over the course of this podcast, but by far the most important thing to know is that Neil himself is a former Marine. He was a lieutenant colonel and a judge advocate, a military judge, in the Marine Corps. And like so many former Marines, his time in the Corps defines him. It's woven into his DNA. 
as we sat there, Neil told me he believed his client was innocent. In fact, he went so far as to say he thought his client was being scapegoated, that the media was biased, that they were using Frank to attack a war they didn't support. I wasn't so sure, and I told Neil that. I mean, when 24 civilians are killed by United States Marines, how is that not a huge story? How can you not investigate that as a potential war crime? Still, I didn't have a dog in the fight. I honestly didn't care if Frank was guilty or innocent. I didn't care if the Marines under his command had committed war crimes or not. I wasn't interested in proving Staff Sergeant Wooderich's guilt or his innocence. I naively thought that would be determined in a courtroom. I just wanted to make a documentary about the whole damn thing. Neil patiently listened to my pitch and then said no. Turn me down cold. He explained that if the government found out I was filming private conversations between Frank and his lawyers, they would argue successfully that Frank had waived his right to attorney-client privilege and that everything I'd recorded, all of it, would be subpoenaed by the government. I could sit there, sipping my latte, promising not to give prosecutors my videotape, but Neil knew better. He knew that after a night or two in jail, I'd be forced to turn everything over to the government, and God only knows what would be on those tapes. The risk was simply too great. Now, had I been smart, had I known this story would end up consuming the next 15 years of my life, that it would almost bankrupt me, I'd have shaken Neil's hand, thanked him for his time, and driven back to New York. But I didn't. Instead, I came up with a crazy idea. Hire me. Make me part of the defense team. I'll be your videographer, a digital note-taker of sorts. I'll go to places you can't go, like Frank's home in Camp Pendleton, or I'll videotape depositions. Maybe, and I didn't really believe this at the time, I'll even go to Haditha for you. But here's the thing. Since I'll be working for you, you and I will have a contract. Everything I shoot will be your property. You'll own it. In fact, let's put into the contract that I can't keep any of the videotape I shoot. I have to hand everything over to you. That way, if the government does find out I'm filming all this behind-the-scenes footage and they do serve me with a subpoena, I can turn to them and say, not only do I not own the videotapes, I don't even have them. Go serve Neil Puckett, Frank Wooderich's lawyer, with a subpoena for his own work product. And good luck with that. Now to protect me, to ensure that I had the independence I needed to tell you this story. I proposed that the contract clearly state that when Frank's court-martial was over, regardless of the outcome, Neil would pay me by giving me every videotape I shot. He couldn't keep a single tape, even if there were ones that made Frank look bad. Neil liked the idea, but told me he'd have to think about it. You see, no one had gotten access to a murder trial in this way before. None of us knew if this agreement would hold up in court. Luckily, we never had to find out. Here's where we are on this, Frank. I mean, we are at the no shit, you fuck up and you go to jail and you get to meet your grandkids at Fort Leavenworth during visiting hours. Okay. So we we, we got to do this right. Yep. Okay. So did the room get cleared 
while you were in the building, or did it not? I mean, that's what that's where I'm going with it, this. It did not get cleared at that time. Okay, that room did not get cleared. At that okay, time. so there should be no hesitation when I say, "Did you see Marines follow that grenade into that room?" No. In the next episode, the incredible story of the single most important piece of evidence in the entire Haditha case, the photographs. I saw women and children lying in their beds, in their pajamas, who have been shot. I don't know how many were in that. I want to say one, two, three, four, five or six, somewhere around there, in that one bedroom. That image still haunts me. If you want more Murder in-House 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are posting videos of what you've just heard, as well as photos and copies of original documents as well. This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and the Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniot, with additional editing by Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls, and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulk Hart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, check out Crowd Network's original called Death of a Sports Star. Each episode is about the likes of Kobe Bryant, Pat Tillman, and Payne Stewart, the American golfer who died in a plane that just kept on flying. They're beautifully crafted by the best writers and voices, and they're available now. Just search for Death of a Sports Star in your podcast app. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. 
Together, we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. <laughs> 